Hey, thanks for tuning in to the First Monroe podcast. For more information on our church, visit firstmonroe.com. We hope you enjoy. I want to pose a question to you. Um, you don't have to answer out loud. I just want you just to think about this question, okay? If you were stuck on a desert island and you could only bring three things, what would you bring? If you were stuck on a desert island all by yourself and you could only bring three things, what three things would you bring with you? If you were stuck on a desert island all by yourself, you could only bring three things, what three things would you bring? Kind of hard question uh, to start. I was thinking about it yesterday, and you start thinking through all the things that you could bring. You know, first you start thinking of like, you know, do I bring my TV? Do I not? You know, so but then you start kind of limiting it down. Uh, it was funny. I was looking on the internet, and uh, I was looking at different people's responses to this. I want you to listen to what some of the people on the internet said. Some of them are good. Some of them are not. Uh, some people said a GPS. That'd be that'd be a smart thing to bring, right? To know your coordinates, to know where you are. Uh, some people said a fire, in a sense, whether it's a lighter, whether it's waterproof matches, that would be something to bring. Uh, some people said a companion. Uh, it'd be good so if you're all by yourself. It'd be good to have somebody you could talk to, so that'd be something. Somebody said a plane. Uh, if you wish for a plane, then you could just fly out of there, and you're not stuck on a desert island anymore, so that's smart. There's some other people that said some kind of different things. Somebody said a George Foreman grill. <laughs> so if they were stuck on a desert island, they would bring a George Foreman grill. I don't know if that'd be my choice. Um, some people said that they wanted to bring their big screen TV with all the sports channels so they could just sit on the beach and watch sports. Some people said a lifetime supply of Skittles uh, while they're stuck on a desert island. Somebody says a lifetime supply of pizza. Um, and then one person said that they would like to have Johnny Depp um, stuck on, I guess, of Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. That they wanted to have Johnny Depp stuck on with them. I, I'm not sure if these are good picks uh, for if you were stuck on a desert island. But in a sense, here's in a sense. I don't know if you've heard this question before. Maybe whether it was in school, whether it was an icebreaker, that you've heard a similar question. If you were on desert island, you could only bring a certain amount of things. What would you bring? In a sense, here's what the question. If you boil it all down to, is in a sense asking this question: What are the essentials? If you were to peel everything back. If you were only allowed a few certain items to survive on an island all by yourself, what are the most essential things that you have to have in order to survive? You're, in a sense, asking what are the essentials. If you were to look up the definition of the word essential, it means this. It means this, things that are absolutely necessary. This is not land yap. This is not a little something extra. This is absolutely necessary. So with that question in mind, I want to ask another question just for you to think about. When it comes to the Christian life, what are the essentials for the Christian life? If we think about it, as we are called to, as believers, we live our Christian life, or even as we think about it as a church, what are the absolute essentials? When we peel everything back, when we pull away distractions, when we pull it all back, well, if we had to narrow it all down, we would say these are absolutely essential. We have to have these things in order to live a faithful Christian life. I would say this, faith is one. One of the things that we'll look at this morning, and I love this, this is what Peter actually does, is he looks in this text and he's going to point out to us what is one of the most essential things that you and I must have in order to have a vibrant Christian faith. Now, obviously, we know this. There will be multiple essential things, 
But these people that Peter's writing to, I would say this, are on an island. They're not on an island surrounded by water, but they're surrounded by an island of persecution. They're literally surrounded, these people, if we looked at the context of this passage, these people uh, are dying. These people are having their house destroyed. Their lives are being destroyed. Their jobs are being destroyed because of their faith in Jesus. And here's one of the things I love that Peter does is he's reminding them, even though everything else is fading around you, even though you are surrounded, your world is literally being turned upside down. Here is something as you continue through this, as you build your church through this, you have to have this a part of your life and a part of your church. So if you take notes this morning, here is the main idea, and it's this, that the Bible is essential for living the Christian life. The Bible is essential for living the Christian life. If you and I want to live out the Christian life, the Bible is not something that's lanyap. It's not something that's a secondary thing. If you and I want to be faithful followers of Jesus, if we want to have a faithful church, the Bible is an essential element in order to do that. You should have your Bible turned to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 22 and then read through chapter 2 verse 3. If you remember, if you were here last week, this is actually the passage we looked at last week. We looked at the idea of love and that we're called to love one another. But we'll look at the second theme in this passage dealing with the Bible. It says this in verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander, and like newborn infants long for pure and spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This morning we will look at the second theme in this passage dealing with the Bible. Uh, This is, in a sense, the theme that runs through this whole passage that Peter is dealing with. This is an essential element to us as believers if we're going to live faithfully. So, you know this about me. Obviously, I've already posed questions. I want to pose another one. I love questions. And so, I've made the statement that the Bible is essential to the Christian life. But I want to answer this question this morning Uh, Because here's what I know. I know that as there are people in this room, uh, you may have grown up in church or you may never have grown up in church. And so some people may say, oh, yeah, I know the Bible is essential. But there's some people that may push back and say, well, why? So I want to answer that question. Why? Uh, Why is the Bible essential? Or I could say this. What makes the Bible essential for the Christian life? Why? Uh, You made the statement it's essential. But why? What makes the Bible essential for the Christian life? And so what we'll do this morning it's through the text. We'll answer several. We'll have several responses to this question to hopefully show you as you walk out of this room that you will walk out knowing this: the Bible is essential for the Christian life. Um, and what I'll do after each point is I want to give us kind of a practical application of that point of uh, how this should impact our life. So, if you take notes, here's point number one: what makes the Bible essential for the Christian life? Number one is this: because the Bible is God's eternal word. Number one. Because the Bible is God's eternal word. This starts off in the text, and we see this very clearly, that the reason why the Bible is essential is because it's not just some ordinary book. It's not a book that was made a long time ago. It's not a book that's just filled with paper and words on it. The reason why this is essential for our life is because it's the actual living, breathing words of God. 
That's why you and I are to follow this. There's one thing that Peter does. Look down in verse 24. In verse 24, you may notice this in your text. It maybe looks a little different. Uh, maybe it is uh, squished down a little bit, basically to insinuate that he's quoting from the Old Testament. And here's what he's quoting from. He's quote, quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8. And here's what he says. He says, All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory is like the flowers of the grass. Meaning that all that is contained here on this earth, flesh, humanity, in a sense, is like grass. It's like the flowers of grass. He says this, in a sense, the grass is here one day and it's gone the next. The grass withers, the flower falls, but then he makes this humongous statement in verse 25 and he says this, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. He says this, this statement in a sense that everything in a sense that we know in life will fade. Everything in our life will go away. He says there's one thing that will never go away, and it's the Word of God. He says the Scripture is absolutely eternal, in a sense meaning this. I think there's two things that we can draw from this, this quote from Isaiah. Is we, know this, we know one thing about the character of God, that God is eternal. Think about this. This always is, there's some truths in Scripture when I hear them, and it just blows my mind. There's never been a time when God has not existed. Think about that. There's never been a moment when God has not existed. He existed before time, and guess what? When time ends, He will exist after that. He was, the scripture says, Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's never been a time when God has not existed. That's crazy, isn't it? Because here's, I think here's the problem with us everything we know is not that way. Everything in our life we know has a beginning and an end. And here's what he's saying. God is eternal. God never ends. And here's what we can draw from that. Because he's eternal, therefore his word that he has spoken is eternal. The very things that he said, the very thing, it carries the same essence of his character. That his word, the Bible, is absolutely eternal. It's his word and it's his eternal word. I said this earlier. I think this is what's hard for us to grasp sometimes. Um, Have you ever heard the quote, nothing lasts forever? That's true, right? Nothing lasts forever. Um, Success, money, uh, clothes, a relationship, fame, unsuccess, discouragement. I mean, think about literally good or bad in life. Think about that nothing really lasts forever. It's encouraging if you're going through a very bad uh, place right now to know it won't last forever. But also at the same time, if you're going through something really good, no, that won't last forever either. That, That nothing in life will really last forever. If we really begin to think about that, I mean, that, that's true in the sense that's exactly what the people of, that Peter's writing to. Think about it, as we said earlier. They're being persecuted. I mean, their life is literally flipped up, upside down. They don't know if today when they wake up, as he writes this to them, they don't know if that's the day they're going to be martyred. They don't know if that's the day their home will be destroyed. I mean, think about how crazy that turns your world upside down. That you really don't know what will last. And here's what I love that Peter encourages them. He says, look, while everything else around you looked like it's failing, Everything else around you look like it will not last. Understand there is one thing that will last, and it's the Word of God. In a sense, here's what he's saying. is literally you can bank your life on it. Why? Because the promises of God will never fail. The promises that we see from Scripture, the promises that we see come from Scripture, the promises we have as believers in Scripture, there is never a time when they run out. There'll never be a time when he says, well, that's no longer valid anymore. His promises and His Word will last forever. And he says, here's what he's saying, and here's kind of what I want us to see for our life. Since the Bible is God's eternal word, what should that do for us in our life and our church? And I believe it's this. It's believe the Bible should be the foundation of our life and our church. 
If the Bible, and it is, is God's eternal word, this should cause us to make the Bible the foundation of our life in our church. It's this. Since this is true, you and I can literally bank our life on this. I can build my foundation on what the Word of God says. Who God is, how we experience salvation through Christ, everything that is contained within this, we understand this. This is not just some old book. It's not a... It's not just something with pages and words on it. Understand this. We know this. This is the living, breathing, alive Word of God. And you and I should literally bank our life and make our foundation on this Word. That's exactly what he's saying. And understand how much comfort that provides someone who's walking through difficulty, who doesn't know whether they're going to have their last breath, says, look, you can bank your life on this. There's a lot of things in life you cannot bank your life on. He's saying you can on this. The Bible is God's eternal Word. Second is this. How can, uh, why is the Bible essential? What makes the Bible essential? Number two is this, that the Bible leads to salvation and life. Number two, the Bible leads to salvation and life. Just don't answer it out loud. I just want you to think about it. Think about from Genesis to Revelation, how salvation comes about. So let's just think through the whole thing of Scripture. How is salvation, how does it come about all throughout Scripture? And I would submit to you it's this. Someone who places their faith in what God has said. How are people saved all throughout Scripture? Because people are willing to bank their life and place their faith in what God has said. Think about, in I want to run through a few examples. Think about Exodus. Think about they are slaves And they are being called out. And what does God do at the last plague? He goes and says, hey, if you kill a spotless lamb, you smear the blood on the doorpost, your family will be saved. And because of this, guess what happened? They experienced the salvation of God. God redeemed them out of slavery and brought them as a new nation, the Israelites. Think about example of uh, the Israelites in Jericho. They come across this huge enemy that they can't defeat. How did they defeat Jericho? Well, you could say that they walked around... Jericho, and they shouted, which they did, but what did they do? They placed their faith in what God had said, and guess what happened? It happened. We follow it all the way to Jesus. How is someone saved in Jesus? Because the Bible very clearly lays out that God has provided a way for us. We are sinners in desperate need of God's grace. We are not worthy of God. We're not worthy of these things. But because God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, in this world, who lived a perfect sinless life and then willingly offered his life on the cross in exchange for ours. And here's what scripture says. Anyone who places their faith in what Christ has done, scripture says this, you will be saved. How are we saved? It is by responding to placing our faith in what God says. Listen to what he says. Look in verse 23. He says this, since you have been born again, how, how have we been born again? He says this, through the living and abiding Word of God. How have you been saved? What has brought about this salvation in your life? It's through the living and abiding Word of God. Look down at the end of verse or 25. He says this, And this Word is the gospel that was preached to you. And it says, here's what he's saying is, How in the world did you hear about salvation? How did you hear about Jesus? We know this, who saves us? It's Jesus. But how do you hear about Jesus? You hear it because of God's word. That's how you know what salvation looks like. Notice he says this. He says, and he compares the word of God to a seed. He says, you've been born again, not from a perishable seed, but imperishable. 
Now, one of the things that we see is that, think about this, all of life really begins as a seed. Uh, A seed comes and has the potential for life. Uh, Obviously, with proper watering and all those kind of things, we have a plant. Here's what he's getting at. Something spiritual cannot be born from something that's material. Only spiritual can give birth to spiritual. In a sense, what he's saying is, notice how you were born again. Not from perishable seed, but he says something that is imperishable. The imperishable seed which he compares to the Word of God. Think about in Matthew 13. Remember the parable of the sower? What does he compare the seeds to? The Word of God. In a sense, what he's saying is, here's what takes place during salvation. is It is coming, and by the watering of the Holy Spirit, this is what leads and gives birth to salvation in our life when we hear the Word of God. The Word of God has the power to lead us to life and to salvation. It lays out clearly the plan for life and the plan for salvation. So, I would say this. Since the Bible leads us to life and salvation, what should that cause you and I to do in our life, in our church. And I believe it's this. It's to preach, to proclaim, and to teach nothing else but the living and abiding Word of God. Let me pose it this way. Why would we preach, teach, and proclaim anything else if only the Word of God has the power to lead to life and salvation? Let me say this to you, and this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is my commitment to First Monroe is that when every time we come during the time of the service to the preaching of God's Word that you only get to hear through the power of the Holy Spirit only the Word of God. Not my opinion. Not self-help. Not politics. Not fancy talk. Not good stories. And not about how to live a good life. My task and my job is to preach to you nothing but the living and abiding Word of God. You can get all that other stuff anywhere else. Jump on Facebook, watch the news, you can get all those other things. When it comes to the preaching and proclaiming of God's Word, there's one thing that you and I need more than anything else, and that is the preaching and proclaiming of God's Word. And so I've said this before, and let me say this, you, you hold me accountable that everything that comes from this pulpit comes straight from the text. You're not getting James's opinion. You're not getting what my thoughts or my self-help on things that you are getting exactly what God has said. Because I would say this, why would you want anything else? If only the Word of God has the power to lead to life and salvation, then I should preach, proclaim, and teach nothing else. It's the same thing with our life, same thing with our church and our personal life. So since the, since the Scripture leads us to life and salvation, then we should teach, proclaim uh, nothing else but the Word of God. Number three, another reason of why the Bible is essential for the Christian life. And number three is this, because the Bible reveals what is right and wrong. The Bible reveals what is right and what is wrong. The Bible reveals what's good and what's evil. The Bible reveals what sin is. The Bible reveals what God's will looks like. He reveals to us what righteousness is. I think this is something that we need to see. And as we talked about the gospel, the good news of the gospel, I've said this before if you've been in here before, is that before there's really good news of the gospel, there's really bad news. So in order for me to recognize my great need for salvation, I have to have my sin pointed out to me. 
There's only one thing that points out to us our sin, our selfishness, our hearts within us. The only thing that will do that is Scripture. Notice last week, what we looked at last week, we looked at the commandment that God has laid out for us to love others the way that Christ has loved us. You will only know to do that how? Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has told you that is what living a Christian life looks like. But it also does the second in chapter 2. He says, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. In a sense, what he's saying is, hey, this is what sin is. This is what will destroy unity. This is what will destroy relationships. This is the opposite of what love looks like. And so what we see throughout Scripture is that it lays very clearly out for us what is good and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. Here's the problem with that. Is there is a lot of pushback right now in our culture about what is right and what is wrong. Many people in our culture um, would say something similar to this, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as true right and true wrong. In a sense, here is the way that our culture is currently right now. You have your truth. I have my truth. Don't impose your truth on my truth, and I won't impose my truth on your truth. Everything's relative. That's a very dangerous place to be. When everything becomes relative, where you can't tell me what's right or wrong, and I can't tell you what's right or wrong, uh, that, doesn't, that leads nowhere good. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 2016, uh, it was Oxford Dictionary released their Word of the Year in 2016. I want you to listen to what their Word of the Year was. It was post-truth. Their Word of the Year was post-truth. Here's the definition that they give. It is relating to or denoting circumstances which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than the appeals to emotion and personal belief. I'll read it to you again. Word was post-truth relating to or denoting circumstances which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, I believe this is a very correct word for to be the word of year in 2016. Why? Because this is exactly what our culture and world looks like. Really what holds more weight now is if it draws on your emotions. If it draws, in a sense, it ha- it's almost like we've gotten to the point where we just like thrown out facts, truth, reality. Let's just throw those out the window. If it just feels good, if it relates, if it stirs me, then I'll do it. Let me just say this. It is a dangerous point when truth becomes a moving target versus a fixed point. Just culturally, that's a dangerous point when I can no longer pinpoint what truth is and it's now a moving target versus a fixed point. And here's what we see in Scripture. Is that Scripture, and let me say this, we do this gracefully. I would say this, I think Christians have done a very bad job in our culture because we've been known as people who... We believe in right and wrong, and we're just going to hit people over the head and just until they don't enjoy it anymore. And let me say this, that is a wrong way to do it. We stand for, we know what, what is right and what is true, but also, as we were reminded last week, we do it as we love people. We don't, we don't do it just void of love. We do it, we, or Ephesians tells us this, speak the truth in love. That's how we're to communicate the truths of God. But here's what we should see. Since the Bible reveals to us what's right and wrong, here should be our response as our life and our church, and it's this. To allow the Bible to influence our life rather than the culture. To allow the Scripture to influence our life rather than the culture. I want to read to you in 2 Timothy 4. Listen to what Paul says. 
He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have an itching ear. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander off into myths. Isaiah 5.20 predicts this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. He says there's coming a time where people will call what is good evil, and they will call what is evil good. He says there's coming a time, and let me just say this, I believe the time that he was predicting is now. That You see that is what's taking place in our culture now, that people are calling good evil and evil good. You see that we now live in a time where people have an itching ear, where they basically want to only hear what soothes them. Look, look I've, I've told you this before. Anytime we preach on sin here, I understand, you know, there's a lot of churches that don't preach sin anymore. Why? It's because it doesn't make you feel good. Uh it doesn't stir you. It doesn't make you excited to say, hey, this is something that's wrong in my life. But remember, my task is to just say what the Scripture says. But here's one of the things we have to be, I would say, as a church, as an individual, and as a people. As we live in this culture, we're not to let the culture influence us on what is right is wrong. We're to let the Word of God continually speak to us and say, this is what right and wrong looks like. That's hard. I would say this right now, that's a hard, we are in a hard place right now to stand up for the truth, to stand up for what the Scripture says, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Because you have a culture that's coming alongside saying, that's not true, that's outdated. Do you realize some of the Bible is over 2,000 years old, even older than that? You can't possibly continue to put your faith in that. We know this, that this isn't just some old book. We know that it is God inherently inspired Word of God. And so here's what we are to do in our life. No matter what culture, no matter what world around us is taking place, we are to let the Word of God influence our life and influence what we do. Number four is this. Why is the Bible essential for our life? Number four, it's this, because the Bible produces spiritual growth. Why is the Bible to be essential for us as believers? It's number four, because the Bible produces spiritual growth. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 2. He says this, like newborn infants long for pure and spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He compares this and he says, here's in a sense what is a true mark of a disciple is this, a longing for the word. He uses this word here and he says, he says this, as young infants long for, meaning this, they have this burning desire within them. For the Word of God. It says pure spiritual milk, but really the text really should say this, the pure milk of the Word is how it should be translated. And so in a sense what he's saying is this, is this is a marker of a disciple, is someone who longs for the Word of God. But it's interesting the word picture that he uses here is he compares it to an infant desiring milk. Now, let me just say this. Um, If some of you, if you have kids in here and uh, maybe your kids are grown and older, you may have forgotten. So let me just remind you. Kids get really cranky when they want their milk. Uh, we right now have uh, two in our house. Uh, one that's two, I guess, working on three. And then we have one that's six months old. And Chapel is our six-month-old. And every morning when he wakes up, that dude is mad. And he's, look, let me say this, if you know him or you've ever seen him, he is a happy, happy kid, an amazing kid. He sleeps all night, praise the Lord. 
And he is an amazing kid. He's happy all the time. But let me tell you this. When he's hungry, he will let you know in a hurry. Uh, even if, if you've ever seen an infant come out, I mean, think about this. I mean, there is this longing, there is this desire built within them to long for nourishment for their body. Why? It's because they need nourishment to grow. But one of the things they say, if, if you study this or if you look online, that, that's one of the things they say. It is essential. There are certain essential things that an infant has to get early on for their development later on. It, I mean, it is super important that they get what they need in order for them to grow. If they don't, one of the things that will happen is they'll be malnutritious. And it's interesting that he, he uses this example. He says, just as an infant desperately needs milk, the same thing is for a Christian. They desperately need the Word of God in their life. In a sense, what he's getting at is, I'll say this application for our life. Since the Bible produces spiritual growth, uh, what should this cause for us in our life? And it's to long for and to intake the Word of God consistently in our life. That Since the Bible is truly what is able to produce spiritual growth in our life, you and I are to long for and to intake the Word of God. He says in verse 3, he says, If you've indeed tasted that the Lord is good, since you've experienced salvation, there should be a longing for the Word of God. Let me say this, and as I say it, um, I'm just going to say, I'll just say it. I believe right now, just in the whole landscape of Christianity in America, there's a lot of people that sit within churches every single Sunday that if you spiritually were able to look at them, they are malnutritious every single week. That there are so many believers that profess to know Christ, but yet they know nothing of the Word of God. Let me say this. This this is not a good thing. Let me just say this. If you were to see an infant deprived of milk, what would you do? First of all, you'd probably be really mad. Uh, you would probably, if, if a parent was neglecting their infant child, you'd probably report them. You'd probably turn them in. You'd probably say there's no place for that. But here's what's interesting is how comfortable we are when it comes spiritually. There are people that, if you were to ask them, what is the whole story of the Bible? There are many people who profess, profess to know Christ who could not sit down and walk through, here's the whole story of the Bible. I think some of it is maybe it could be a lack of preaching of the Bible from the pulpit, that maybe there's a, uh, not an emphasis on Scripture or reading or intaking Scripture, but one of the things we see in Scripture is that we are to long for Scripture. Let me just say this. Some people say, well, you know what, James, I'm not a pastor, Hadn't been seminary. I'm not a professor. I don't know everything. Let me share something with you, and this should be encouraging. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that you have to hold a seminary degree to read or understand the Bible. Praise God. You don't have to be a pastor to understand it. You don't have to have a seminary degree to be able to read it. Here's what's awesome. This is for every single person who has been born of the Spirit, who has the Spirit within them. Here's what he says. Every one of us is to read intake, to long for the Word of God. And here's what's awesome. And he actually says this in 1 John. You've actually already been given a teacher. Thankful we have sermons. Thankful we have uh, resources now and, and books and commentaries to draw from. But here's what's awesome. You know you've already been given your teacher, right? 
The Spirit of God has been given to you to help you and aid you as you read Scripture, to teach you as you read it, to help you to know how to apply it to your own life. Let me... I don't want to say this to, to be condescending or to beat anyone up in this place. But I do want to say this. It's not okay for a Christian to just nonchalantly say, yeah, I don't really like the Bible much or I don't read it much, and it's okay. Let me say it's not okay. He says, how are you to grow up in your salvation? Notice this, there's an expectation of growth. Just as we would expect a child to grow, there's an expectation for a Christian to grow up in their faith. How do you do that? One of the ways and one of the essential ways you and I grow is through what? Scripture. This is one of the ways that we grow in the Lord is by intake and longing for God's Word. So let me say this kind of as a challenge for us. If you sit here and you say, you know what, James, I don't understand or I don't read the Scripture much, that's okay. Guess what? You can start today. You can start tomorrow. You may may say, I don't understand everything. Join the club. I don't either. There's a lot of, uh, I hope you understand this, there's a lot of times that I'll, on Sunday morning, or hopefully I'm not preparing my sermon on Sunday. Uh, Earlier in the week, that would be bad. Earlier in the week, I'll look at this, and I'll read it a lot, and I'll be like, I have no clue what that just said. So please understand, as you come on Sunday, you're like, oh, wow, James explained that very clearly. All week I've been like, I don't know what that means. And here's what a lot of times my day looks like as I'm praying. I'm like, Holy Spirit, you just have to teach me because I have no clue what that means. I have no clue how that applies to our life. So please understand this. If you say sometimes, hey, the Bible may be tough. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand. Hey, look, join the club. But here's what's awesome is that God has gifted us with everything that we need. I would say this too. If you have a translation that's hard to read, get a different translation. I read out of the ESV. I love the ESV. I love to teach out of the ESV because it's a literal translation from the Greek. But let me just say this. Get a translation you can read and understand. You and I as believers, as we think of the Scripture, that we are to long for the Word of God. Earlier I asked a question or I... I guess I posed a question to you that if you were stuck on an island, what would be the essential things you would need in your life? You might get trapped on an island. Uh, I hope you don't, and I hope that doesn't happen. But I would say this, while I doubt many of you are going to be trapped on an island, you are probably going to be faced with a hostile culture around you. You probably will be faced with difficult decisions in the days ahead. You will be faced with different moral decisions ahead. You will have to raise kids, grandkids in this culture. You're going to have to live your faith day in and day out. And in order to do that, you need something absolutely essential, and that's Scripture. If you and I want to be faithful followers of Jesus, this has to be an essential element in our life and in our church. I would say this, a church that is not teaching, proclaiming, and adhering to the Word of God, or a life that is not doing the same, is an unhealthy church and an unhealthy Christian. Why? Because this is essential for our life, for our growth, for the kingdom of God, for us to intake and long for the Word of God. Let's pray.